The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. I'm Leah Smart, and welcome to In the Arena, a LinkedIn self-development podcast. Our show explores the vulnerable aspects of the human experience to inspire transformation. The Great Reshuffle. You're a part of it, you're hearing about it, and you might be confused about it. This week, I invited LinkedIn's chief economist, Karen Kimbrough, to answer all of our curiosities about the Great Reshuffle. Now, I'll let her tell you about what it is, but here's why you should care. The next phases of the Great Reshuffle and its underlying drivers are already and will fundamentally shift the world of work forever. This isn't just about when we go back to the office or how to have effective and inclusive virtual meetings. It's really about how humans relate to work. And as the largest contingent of the workforce, millennials, are transitioning jobs at the second highest rate in the job market, up by 50%, we should probably all be paying attention to what it is they're seeking. This conversation is about what we understand from the numbers. It's where our culture is heading as it relates to our relationship to work. And Karen says it's also about what we will choose to normalize in the future. A couple of hints. It's got more to do with why we work than what we do for work and our well-being. Now, why Karen on this show about self-development? Well, number one, she's amazing. But the next phase of work is going to ask us to be even more open and conscious of the humans who work for us and among us, and more conscious of ourselves, too. It's going to require us to each reach further into our collective development, beyond just our own development. Now, keep up to date with Karen. She's got some amazing work, really important research on the Great Reshuffle. She will keep you in the know. She's on LinkedIn. Karen Kimbrough. And if you're a business leader feeling the heat of the great reshuffle, which based on the numbers you probably are, take a listen. Karen is laying the foundation for how you should be thinking about this time and about the future of work. Enjoy. I think the reshuffle is on everybody's mind right now. It is the question that is occupying a lot of our mental space here on my team. And it's, I think, really important for how we figure out, is our economy recovering or are we getting folks maybe that are left behind? And what, like, you know, I I was actually funny enough talking to someone a few weeks ago who said, I don't even know what the great reshuffle is. So what is it? And, And also, Karen, why should we care? Yeah, absolutely. So the great reshuffle, the way I, I talk about it is it's really a way of capturing this moment where we're seeing unprecedented change. A lot of workers are basically making a change. And that change in job and role um, and where they live has come about because they've spent the better part of a year and a half since the pandemic kind of really pondering, I think, what's important to them in their life. And many people, you know, are thinking about who they are, their identity um, as it connects to work. But the pandemic is forcing you to think about your identity in your community as well, because there's been so much, frankly, just pain and distress by people who've gotten ill and, and, 
and lost family members. So the reshuffle technically is just this period of people rethinking not just how they work, but where they work, why they work, and in some cases, whether they're going to work at all. And that means that our labor market is going through this really interesting time of change. And we're just trying to figure it out. Just to give you maybe a number, in the past three months, we've seen almost a 50% increase in the number of members who are changing roles. And that is a huge increase in people who probably have at one point just said, you know what, I think for what I'm doing, I want different terms. I want to be paid more. I want to be living someplace differently. I want to have more flexibility, whatever it is, people are changing roles. And that reshuffle is what we're talking about right now. So it's just, it's really capturing a moment in time of massively increased shift in where people work, why they work and who they work for. Yeah. Why, where, how, all of it, when, <laughs> whether, all the yeah, weather. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting because the way I, I think about it is it's almost like the social contract that you imagined existed between employers and workers is being rewritten. And the workers, the job seekers, they have more bargaining power than they ever had in, say, the last 20 or 30 years. And so that social contract is being rewritten. It's very interesting. I'm thinking about my own graduation period. And I, I graduated, I was supposed to graduate actually in 2009. And I took an extra year to two, 2010, but still in the midst of everything, of people just clamoring for jobs. It was definitely not a, you know, a buyer's market or an employee's market. It was, you know, things were falling apart and you just wanted to be able to get paid. It is a complete 180 from that experience where you're hearing, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm reading articles and, you know, hearing people say they're pushing for much higher salaries. They're telling people how and when they're going to work. It's, it's very much that the employers are at the behest of the employee. The employers are trying to figure out not only how do they hire the folks they want to hire, but how do they keep the folks they have because of the reshuffle, right? The reshuffle is also driving some attrition where people are leaving one job to go to another. And a lot of the data that we look at, see on our own platform, you know, is speaking to this. People are quitting at unprecedented rates in America, mm -hmm. the highest really young record. And oftentimes you don't quit a job because you don't have another one lined up. Although sometimes now I'm wondering, maybe a few of these people are just taking some time out. But people are quitting because they're essentially saying, I think I can get a better deal. Mm -hmm. And that better deal could be, I can get higher wages. We're definitely seeing wages go up quite substantially. And in many cases, like the fastest increase in wage that we've seen in multiple decades. Now that's not to say that the level of the wage is going to continue to rise at this rate or that it's already people are being paid more than they deserve. I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just saying the rate of increase because workers have some bargaining power here, some negotiation power to say, uh, you know, this is what I want to be paid. And it's not even across all levels of the economy, of course, right? So if you um, ask me, you know, where do we see wage increases? It's all over the board. In some cases, some of the service sector wages are moving up the most, but they needed to, right? In other cases, you're seeing a lot of wage momentum in highly skilled, 
roles that require advanced or disruptive digital skills. So, you know, an AI role or a cloud computing role, cybersecurity roles, those roles also have huge wage increases. So we're seeing wage increases, you know, across the board in various pockets, but it's not systematically even for everyone. Um, But it's definitely reflecting this increased power that workers have, I think, at the moment or job seekers have at this moment to set terms. And that's, of course, only one one term, right? Leah, like there's other terms. There's remote work where we're seeing enormous increases in the number of roles that employers are offering that are remote. And these roles are being offered because that's what people are looking for. We can see on our own platform, that's the thing people most want right now. (laughs) I mean, apart from great compensation and benefits and flexibility and things we should talk about too, but they want remote and it's not irrational when we still have a pandemic going, when we're not totally ahead of it, we've just gone through another wave in September of 2021, went through another wave of cases that hopefully we're cresting. So people are rightfully cautious and they would prefer to work remote. So where they can, that's what they're looking for. And we're seeing huge interest on a platform for remote work at all types of roles, all industries. So there's this group of people who are saying, you know, I have better bargaining power when I leave my company and I go to another company and bargain for a higher salary in remote work. And then you've got this other group of people that you mentioned who are saying, you know what, I am done. I'm going to walk away. I don't care about bargaining power, but I'm leaving. And I think there was an article in Business Insider that was talking about the fact that it was interviewing actually a millennial woman who was in her early 30s. And she had left her company and she had gone to, I believe she was bartending, and then she was also doing some continued study, but she was just done. What are we learning about those people? It's like we're learning that people are trying to claw back their well-being and they're prioritizing it. And I think it's all generations. So you are seeing people who are saying, burnout is real for me and I need to step away. And maybe I have a little bit of breathing room to do that. Now, what would give people breathing room to be able to step away? Sometimes it's like, I've already left my very expensive place in a coastal city and I've now moved back in, you know, with my parents. And so I don't have the carrying costs (laughs) or the expenses that I normally have. And I can afford to do that and find a cushion. It may be that people are saying rightfully that maybe my student loans have been deferred. And so that's giving me a little bit of a cushion. Or they may have been drawing up until, you know, through September, unemployment benefits. A lot of pandemic unemployment benefits um, were discontinued in September. But until then, people were getting a little bit of extra money. And that gave them, frankly, I think some wiggle room to pay down debts, which people did. That was, you know, the learning from the last crisis was you don't want to be carrying a whole lot of debt. And so people paid down the debts where they could. And we saw that in the data. And so I think people are just trying to preserve their well-being. And if they have the financial wherewithal to do it, they're doing it. Now, younger people might be relying on parents. They might be living, choosing to live in cheaper places. And we've seen this migration of talent out of big cities throughout the pandemic to smaller second-tier cities where you have like a better quality of life. You might have more you know, green lungs in the urban area. You might have cheaper housing, more space, and maybe an easier pace. And that has drawn a lot of millennials. We're also seeing older workers retire. Don't see this in our data on LinkedIn, but we see it in the official data sets that people are choosing to retire 
earlier in some cases. And there was a study by the Fed that came out recently suggesting that retiring rates are a little bit higher than they were a couple of years back as a result of the pandemic. And again, it's a sort of a calculation where you're saying, do I want to work in a place where I feel like I might be risking my health or do I feel like I'm being adequately compensated for my time? And, and maybe if I was an older worker, I was probably invested in the stock market, possibly, and I've done well enough to be able to step away and say, I'm just going to retire. So for all reasons across a variety of generations, we're seeing people who are preserving their mental health and well-being. And, you know, our own data suggests that burnout is like 9% higher, you know, than it was even a year ago. And this is largely because people have just been, I think, working under stressful conditions where they're possibly working at home, they're possibly worried about family members, all the things we think about. But what's interesting about work, you know all this, Leah, what's interesting about work is just how much more people are willing to prioritize themselves in this moment than they would have in the past. It's almost like we've gone from living to work to just, you know, working to live. Like I'll work enough to meet what needs I have, but I'm not going to make it my whole life. And I think that's a shift that we're watching happen right now. Does that make sense to you? Like what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a colleague of mine posted a, a poll on LinkedIn yesterday and he got a thousand votes in like a few hours. And the question was, he's like, you know, jokingly asking for a friend, have you ever had a day where you didn't get outside the entire day because you were working? And so this poll of course got a thousand votes. And what do you know? Most people said, yes, that's happening to me all the time. Yes. (laughs) And it was funny because I saw it and it reminded me of an article that came out in Time Magazine in 2019 about doctors prescribing outdoor time as part of the healing regimen for their clients. And one of the doctors actually started a company, a nonprofit, to help more doctors find closer outdoor spaces for clients who needed healing. And so I started thinking about this. And then I realized this morning, I was like, wait a minute, how many times did that happen when we actually were all in the office? There were so many times I never left the office during the day. But for some reason, and I, I'm not sure if it's just because of, you know, I mean, how could it not be partially because of where we are now, but also because of the fact that most of us or many of us are alone and, you know, inside that it's impacting us differently. And, our, and I love the phrase you share about how do we claw back our well-being? Yeah, I, I think you could have counted me in that uh, cohort yesterday. I'm not sure I made it out of the house myself. It was one of those, you know, wake up and go straight to your laptop and get on Zoom and until it was time for dinner. And I don't think I made it out. When we look at what motivates people, they do want to go back to the office. They just want to feel safe doing it. So you raised this point about like, was it any different before? And I think we are going to move back towards where we were a little bit before. It's going to be a little bit more similar than where we are now. We're largely remote in many ways. If you have an office job, if you have a maybe more of a service sector job, you might not be as remote. It depends. But I do think people are craving engagement. They're craving getting outdoors. I think there's a famous mistreatment in Japan about forest bathing, where you go into the forest and you bathe yourself in the trees, not literally bathe yourself, but you just immerse yourself in the forest and it's very healing. I, I could believe it. And I think people are probably in need of all of that, you know, wellness that we were talking about, but they also need to see other people. And when we look at how people are, are like, you know, projecting forward what they want, most of them actually want hybrid. 
they prefer remote right now because it feels safer and more secure and frankly, probably a lot more convenient with all the unknowns around childcare and school and things like that. But what they really want is, you know, I think 56% of them prefer hybrid work. Hmm. Only 30% want a purely remote setting. And when you ask people like what they miss, they actually say they miss like the gossip, the chit chat, the sort of information flow that's very organic that happens, you know, in an unplanned setting. They don't get any of that on, you know, scheduled meetings. And and we know that it changes how people feel about being creative. If they're sort of in these scheduled meetings with one agenda, you kind of stick to the agenda. You don't color outside the lines as it were. So I think where's work going? I think work will kind of pull us a little bit back towards the office eventually, but we're going to have to feel very confident about being ahead of COVID before that happens. I think most of us are done with the phrase back to normal, but what what do you call the phrase if it's not back to normal, but it's kind of similar and kind of different? Like where where are we headed, this hybrid thing? Yeah, we don't have a good phrase. I mean, a lot of people say the new normal. I cannot tell you that sounds original, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, <laughs> not gonna lie. Fair. I mean, there's some human nature things that never change, right? People do want to be around other people. They want to feel that spark of creativity and the unexpected moment where two heads are better than one and they they somehow come up with a great idea. So I think people are going to move back to a a different normal, but what's going to be normalized is hybrid. And what's going to be normalized is having colleagues who are as remote as they are in person. And I think that's exciting because that's an element of flexibility we didn't see before in a kind of traditional nine to five. I think also what's going to be normalized is the scheduling flexibility. And by that, I mean, actually both the scheduling flexibility for let's call it a traditional white collar office worker who in the past was thinking, okay, I need to be in by whatever it is, eight or nine. And I you know, need to stay until five or six, if not longer, that kind of scheduling flexibility will change where it's okay to be productive in different hours. Mm-hmm. The other kind of scheduling flexibility I think is coming is with as hard as it is to get workers in restaurants and in parts of the service industry where traditionally they didn't control their schedule. I think there's a move now to try to provide more schedule flexibility for those workers as well. And I think that'll be vastly more attractive if you can tell people, look, I can guarantee you have Wednesday afternoons off because that's your day to go do what you need to do for your family. And right now, or at least prior to pandemic, a lot of those people didn't have that schedule flexibility. They were sort of just told at the last minute, this is your shift. You know, you show up or you don't have a job. Yeah. And so I think that's part of that social contracts being rewritten is like we're starting to write in more, should I say, autonomy or control for the the worker. And that's probably a good thing because the healthiest labor markets are ones where you have some labor market mobility, this idea that I can move around from job to job if I can take my skills with me and go off and try to find something better that better suits me where I'm going to be more productive. And that's that's important. And we see that in some of the reshuffle data. But you also can see flexibility, bargaining power. These are all other measures of how efficient or how healthy a labor market is. And so we start to see people who can kind of set a few more terms. That's that's probably a good sign. Now, a lot of people say, I'm really worried about wages. I'm really worried about inflation. And is this going to go too far? And I would simply say, Anything could go too far, but at the moment, workers haven't had much negotiation power for the past few decades. We're probably not in danger of swinging so far that we don't ever come back to a good equilibrium. Yeah. I'm reflecting on, you know, I, I was a waitress for all through college and after college for, you know, a year. 
And yeah, I used to just get my schedule and I'd have to just show up when I showed up. And so there was no flexibility. There really was no social contract. There was power and powerless. Exactly. I think it's changing a lot. And I think that's healthy. And I don't think it's a bad thing that wages come up to a point where they're, you know, you have a living wage. I don't think it's a bad thing where people feel inspired to maybe try different roles. What you wouldn't want was someone to feel like I, the first job I ever took was the only job I could ever have. And here I am 30 years later, I've never changed. You want to see people try new things. And traditionally, we think people, you know, they can aspire to economic opportunity in different roles. They actually are more productive. And that's what you want. So you want people doing their best at whatever it is that they do. Despite feeling like we've just come off of a really painful another wave of COVID, we're not where we thought we were going to be 18 months ago. We thought we'd be through this whole thing in a couple of months or something. We're not there at all. But on the other hand, there's a lot of really good signs that maybe people are taking back some power with how they think about work. And I think employers are willing to to work with them. I mean, we're seeing employers make changes too on our platform. They're looking to provide more flexibility, to provide more remote work options. That's one of the fastest growing things on our platform is remote opportunities. We're seeing a lot of young people who are willing to make, you know, transitions and pivots to new roles and step away. How long? I don't know. I mean, what as, a, as like a economist, I would say it's going to take a moment and step back, but I hope they don't step back for too long. Because what we do see is when people step back from the labor market for really long periods of time, say like six months, nine months, 12 months, it's harder to reconnect. Mm -hmm. It's really much harder to reconnect. Taking a month off is not fatal, but taking a year off is a little harder. What does reconnect mean? To find a new match with an employer, Mm -hmm. to feel both confident in how you present what skills you're going to provide and that you're competitive. And also people sometimes don't know where to look. Their their networks, which are often a great source of, of opportunity, can atrophy if you're not maintaining them. I mean, it depends on what you're doing stepping away. If you're stepping away and working on something else, but you're still quite active in your network, that's probably a great thing. But if you're completely checked out, Chances are your network atrophies, and it's a little harder to have someone come and vouch for you to help you get that next role. So we're seeing people step away, and I think that's healthy. I guess I would just say if everyone has still stepped away and hasn't come back in another eight or nine months, I would start to worry a little bit more. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. 
I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, what are some of the challenges that could come out or that are, you know, coming out of this? You know, in reading your your article about the Great Reshuffle or one of them recently talked about the challenge leaders are having, right? And feeling under pressure and how to provide changes to the work structures and models. But what other challenges could come out of this? One thing I think we're thinking about is how do you ensure that people who maybe are remote aren't operating as like a second tier in the workforce? So if there's some people that eventually go back and are primarily back in the office, maybe they're hybrid, but maybe they're primarily in the office, and there are other people who are 100% remote, can you preserve the quality of career opportunity? Can you maintain or achieve full inclusion in a workplace where you have different categories of workers? And I think it's going to be hard. I think especially if you find that remote work is always a certain type of work and people in the office are doing a different type of work, it's going to start to feel separate and maybe not equal. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's one challenge. I think the other challenge that employers are facing is how do you advance and advocate for the culture you want in your workplace when you don't have people all together? Because when we're in a group, we kind of do police each other. We have norms and ways we do things and language we use and jargon and and habits. And if you ever go from company to company or job to job, you'll see that they're slightly different wherever you go. And when people are not all physically together, those invisible ties can fray. And that, I think, I don't want to say weakens your culture, but it might weaken some of the ties that bind you to that culture. And so for companies that want to foster a healthy culture or safe culture, it might be harder and harder to kind of reinforce it when you have people who are not all together. So culture is another one that I think they're thinking about. And then the last one is we know people have moved around, right? And we talked about this aspect of earlier on, people left some of the big, more expensive cities to go elsewhere. We are seeing them come back, by the way. They're slowly making them back. New York definitely looks like it's back. Just happy as a former New York. It is back. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Broadway's open, so it's all good. But how do you think about different locations? So employers are also thinking about, do we pay people the same, even if they live in different places? Do we pay people differently because they're in an expensive area or they've chosen to live in an expensive area, but it's technically remote? So how do you adjust pay scales for different locations? And I think that's another challenge for employers, but probably by and large, it's really thinking about equality, culture, and pay equity. This has been, I mean, one of the most shocking and surprising last 20 months that probably any of us would have had. None of us could have predicted this. And I'm so curious, like as for you as an economist, What's changed in the last 20 months for you in your work and in how you approach, you know, looking at at the market, the job market and at the world? It's been a moment, right, to be working at such a great company with, frankly, a richness of labor market data and then to watch the labor market go through such a shock where it really seized up for a moment and then it's come back. And I think there's some things that have changed and some things that haven't and some things that have interested me. So what's changed is I think that there's part of this great reshuffle that we've been talking about is there's a willingness of people to assert 
a different work-life balance or to assert demands around how they, how much employers can, you know, demand of their time. And I think partly it's generational. We definitely see younger generations feeling much more confident, wanting to say, this is who I am. I want to work for a place I believe in that makes me feel proud to say I work there and whose culture and values I respect. They also, as I said, don't want to like live to work. They want to have a life outside work. And then the other thing I think that like has changed is maybe the government's response to it. We're seeing a lot of policy shifts in the types of benefits that are offered. I think there were lessons learned from the last crisis that meant both monetary policy that's coming from the central bank and fiscal policy coming from the federal and state governments was a lot more proactive than it was in the last crisis and a lot more oriented towards thinking about how do we help like a small business? How do we help individuals than in the last crisis? So I think they wanted to not repeat the way they'd responded last time and try something even more aggressive. So that has changed. And I think that that's how you got those unemployment benefits that came across so quickly in the last, in this past crisis. But what hasn't changed is like looking at how every labor market's different, right? It's still very segmented. There's still people who are in certain jobs that are, it's hard for them to transition and make it out of whatever level they're in to the next level. It's still the case that whatever the shock was, the more education you had, the more digital skills you had, the better you fared. So the unemployment rate now for people who are, you know, have advanced degrees or have bachelor's degrees is very low. You know, it's like, I think it's under 3%. And the unemployment rate for people without a high school degree is, you know, closer to 10%. So that hasn't changed. So there's still a real stratification of access based on, you know, your education, as we know, your zip code is the number one determinant of like your whole life pretty much in the US. And so I think those are things that like haven't changed. Unfortunately, as an economist, I look at it and sadly, those are very effective predictors of how people are going to fare during a shock and how long it takes them to recover. For you, everything I'm imagining or most things are about data. And I'm curious, even as you're starting to share some of this, like there's emotion in this and there's probably there's probably all sorts of things that you're hoping for and not wanting to happen and all of this. I'm just curious, like, what are you hoping for? And this is totally off topic, but what role does your gut, your intuition, like your emotion play in the work you do? So there is a lot of data and there's also because economics is a social science, there's a lot of hypotheses, right? You're like, why am I seeing what I'm seeing? What could it be? So what could be all the reasons people are you know, hesitating to come back to the job market, even though we know there's, frankly, a plethora of open and available jobs, you know, on LinkedIn, you can look at the government data and see it as well. It's a record high, the number of job postings that are out there. So there are jobs to be had. And then the question, why aren't people coming? And you make these hypotheses, and then you kind of look to see is the data going to support this hypothesis or not. But there is a lot of emotion. And I will say that when I first went through this, I was living the pandemic with the rest of us, but also looking at the data and I was living it as a working mother. And I was watching kids not be in school, my own kids and thinking, this is, you know, really hard for them. It's extra hard for me as a parent. And I can only imagine it's even harder for parents with more kids or with fewer resources. And so I think there was a little bit of emotion there. And I, I can get myself quite worked up, to be honest with you, when it comes to things like childcare, because <laughs> I believe that it should be part of infrastructure in America to help allow parents be as productive as possible too. So I do get like emotional on, on a few of my hobby horses that I think are valid. But one of the things that I also get really excited about as an economist is 
where can we see something where we can change an outcome? Where can a policy or a practice or a opportunity change an outcome for a group of people at scale? That would be really huge. So how do you take people who maybe don't have as much access to great education and find a way for them to get jobs? How do you maybe say, can we take job postings that, you know, typically say you need this many years of education, you need to have this degree in order to even be a candidate for this role? How do you go from there to saying, you just need to show me you have this skill and you can be a candidate for this role? Because there might be people who actually never got beyond an associate's degree or never went to college, but have great organizational skills, great project management skills. Why shouldn't they be included as viable candidates for role? So that's something that kind of excites me is this idea that we're moving towards skill-based hiring and we're seeing it. We're seeing, you know, increasingly employers put up postings that are more skill-based because it's more inclusive way of attracting candidates as opposed to just mandating a certain number of education or a certain degree. And so I think that's something, you know, to kind of like tilt towards the positive a little bit. That's something that kind of puts a smile on my face. Oh, you are preaching to the choir. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've been fortunate to have, I think at this point, nine different roles at LinkedIn and multiple functions. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I wasn't sure or didn't believe that I could do it only because of the job description, solely because it said I needed four years of experience doing X, Y, or Z. And it would frustrate me because I was like, but these are transferable skills. I can show up here and do this. And it's only, it's just changing the flavor, right? We're not talking about a totally different type of food. We're just changing the flavor of ice cream. And so it's, this shift has been one that I'm incredibly passionate about too, is how do we get people with the right skills aligned to roles that can give them more economic power, more freedom, whatever it is. I think it's doable. I think when you see what what's occupying the time of, let's say, large employers, they're thinking about a couple of things, right? They're thinking about how do they create more diverse workplaces that reflect the society they're operating in? How do they create sustainable processes that you know, are supportive of the climate and not contributing to like adverse climate change? And how do they speak to the newest generation of people that are demanding that products be technologically advanced, almost anticipating their needs? And they, so they need to get it right on all fronts. They need to have a great product or service. They need to kind of have a great workplace and that workplace environment and culture, and they need to do it in a sustainable way. And that's literally what's occupying a lot of the mindshare of big companies. And I think small companies are thinking about it. They may not have the luxury of doing as much as they would like, but I think that's what everybody's aiming for. And so I think bring more people into the workplace who currently don't feel like they're being called on to join. We would only see more productivity. We would only see better products. We would only see better ideas and a more kind of inclusive place to be. I think it's possible, but I'm very, very much on the optimistic side, but I think it's hard to do. I think it's hard to do. And I I would be doing like short, I'm giving it like short shrift if I pretended that was an easy thing to do. It's, I don't think it is. I think it's really, really hard. It would require some sacrifices. But the good news is that what we, what we do see when we look at data is that an easy way to look at our data is like men versus women, for example, because that's, that's a category that we can often tell who's who when we're comparing different cohorts. And we can see that in the generation of boomers, the division of skills between men and women is a little bit skewed towards men. But that skew gets less and less. The men and women's 
equally showing up having the same skills. I'm snapping. Snapping. (laughs) You know, by the time you get to Gen Z, that gap is quite small. So, you know, I think we're going in the right direction. I wish we were going faster. (laughs) Well, and I got to ask Karen, when you asked that question, have you broke, have we broken that data down from a racial perspective as well? We don't do that. And it's a good question. I've been asked it before. We don't have enough data to be reliably sure that we can say anything that's robust around race. We do have some LinkedIn members that self-identify, but there's inherent bias by having a sample of people who choose to identify versus people who don't. And by the way, you know, we're both sitting here as Black women. We know there are reasons why you might not want to identify like you could get a better outcome by not revealing your race if you're able to do it. That's perfectly rational, frankly. I identify and it's identified in my profile. I think it's important, but I understand people who are, you know, hesitant or reluctant. It's empirically a fact that you get a different response if your name is a certain, identifies you as a certain race. You get a different response in terms of job seeking outcomes. So we don't look at race in our data because we don't have enough people to have a, a really robust analysis done. What we do do now, which I'm kind of excited about, is our team has been able to take our data and join it with zip code, so census level zip code data. And because residentially things are so segregated, at least in America, you can make fair assumptions about the racial breakdowns of groups of people who live in certain zip codes. And then we can kind of draw like rough assumptions about like, well, if you're living in this area, chances are this is your race. And we can see what your outcome is in job seeking. It's it's rough, but that's the only thing we can do. Now, if you ask me about race in labor market data, the government statistics do break it down. And it's very clear what's happening there. And that story, I can tell you in 10 seconds, which is that even at the best of the labor market moments, African-Americans are still at what you might call crisis levels of unemployment. They never really get down to the levels that white Americans are at. And I think there's a long way to go there because they kind of end up with astronomical levels of unemployment when things go bad. And it takes them quite a long time to get converged down to, say, white and Hispanic levels um, and Asian levels of unemployment. What the lesson is for me as an economist is just the longer that you have a good period of time, the more opportunity is for Black unemployment rates to come down and converge. It just pulls them more in. They get more stability and more access. So a good long business cycle of expansion is like the best possible thing. Got it. So there, that's a positive. If we can get a good long expansion, <laughs> we need it to keep lasting. When it comes to the great reshuffle, what do you hypothesize? I hypothesize that the great reshuffle is reflecting a behavioral change in our labor markets, how people prioritize or optimize across all the things that they have to do. So I hypothesize that this is a moment of change in how people think about themselves in the world of work, and they're putting themselves a little bit more first than they did in the past. And what do you hope? I hope that this recovery we're in, which by the way, has been actually fairly quick compared to the last crisis of 2008. I hope that this recovery lasts a good long time, long enough for enough people to get back on their feet and to get back in the workforce and get back to pursuing economic opportunities. I hope it lasts long enough for everyone to get that opportunity. 
And lastly, I know you you said as an economist, you hypothesize, but I wonder if you can also advise or just personally advise, (laughs) what would you advise leaders to be thinking about and to be doing as we sit in the middle of the great reshuffle? So I would advise them to recognize how much the pandemic accelerated underlying changes that we were already seeing in the labor market. Every job now has an element of technology in it. Every job requires you to use something that is a robot or a machine or, you know, something digital, a software program, most every job. Whether you're delivering packages or whether you are, you know, working in cloud computing, you are probably working with a computer in some way or interfacing with some kind of algorithm that's giving you advice on how you use your GPS or where you optimize. And I think leaders need to realize that it's imperative that people have a minimum level of digital skills to be able to really fully participate in the labor force. And that means one, that you prepare people for when they get out of school and you know, we all graduate, we think we know a whole lot. And then we realize in your first job, you're like, I've got a lot. I've got a lot to learn still. You don't know anything. <laughs> don't believe me. Um, yeah. After my first job. But also the lifelong learning, the aspect of like, we're not all going to take our first job and stay there for 10 years. We know people you know, younger people in particular don't stay that long with jobs, they rotate more quickly. And so you might have 10 or 15 jobs in your career, if not more. And so you need to have that opportunity for lifelong learning. And right now, the way a lot of our education is set up is like you, you learn until you're 20 something, and then you're done. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. You should be learning. How do we set up ways for people to do lifelong learning, to upskill, to train, to pick up a new skill, to try something new, That's what I would encourage leaders to think about. Well, thank you so much for being here, Karen. I've learned a lot. And I will also see you have some really good isms. But you talked about, you know, clawing back your well-being, you know, changing of the social contract. Some of these things, I think, are, are things we really need to be digesting and understanding so we can prepare ourselves for the normalization of whatever's next. Whatever's next. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Really enjoyed it. Our show is hosted by me, Leah Smart, and is produced by the amazing LinkedIn media production team. Gratitude to Dan Mills, Nicole Roach, Andy Ta, Katya Kostikova, and Lamia Bowden. Dan Lujan is the mastermind behind the scenes. Chris Eldridge did our cover art, and our music is from the ever-growing collection of APM Music. If you like our show, go on Apple Podcasts to subscribe and rate us. And if the spirit moves you, leave a review. It helps our work get out to more people like you who benefit from it. And if you want to stay in touch, subscribe to our newsletter. It's on LinkedIn and it's called In the Arena. And lastly, you can feel free to email me at inthearena at linkedin.com. Thanks for coming on the journey with me and I'll see you next time.